You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as an international coalition takes shape to confront the militant group Islamic State or ISIS, we'll ask just how effective it's likely to be. And we'll hear why one big regional player is staying out of the fight. But we begin in Scotland, where the independence referendum campaign has entered its final hours, with both sides warning that there'll be no second chances after Thursday's vote. Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron said the referendum was a once-and-for-all decision that could break up the United Kingdom forever, while Scotland's First Minister Alex Salmond urged his fellow countrymen to seize a once-in-a-lifetime chance to go it alone. The polls show the two sides neck and neck, with expectations of a turnout above 80%, with a remarkable 97% of eligible voters registered to vote. I'm joined now from Edinburgh by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, who has been covering every twist and turn of this long campaign. Mark, what, if anything, are the polls telling us about the state of this campaign as it enters its final hours? Well, the polls are telling slightly different things, but they are agreed basically that the uh, race is too close to call. However, there is a very distinct difference between different polls on how many people are still undecided. Some of the polls are putting that figure very low, five or six percent. Some of that, uh, some of the polls are putting that figure at nearly one in five. Now, there are certain methodological re- reasons that explain that to some degree, but nevertheless, it is quite clear that which, uh, even anecdotally talking to people people on the street here. It is quite clear that a not insignificant percentage of people have yet to decide what they want to do or are torn by uh, what they uh, wish to do. Some people, for instance, maybe their heart is telling them uh, to vote yes, but economically they are very uh, still very concerned about the, the consequences. So even with 48 hours to go, there is still a lot to play for by both sides. So even though the polls show it in a kind of a dead heat uh, mm. ahead of the thing, it could actually turn out that there there's a big gap in the end if you actually have got it's so many undecided. Exactly. It is It is exactly possible that uh, the, the, the gap in whichever direction it should go uh, could be far larger than any of us believe at this moment in time because the polls are, as I say, showing this uh, incredible numbers. I was out uh, uh, with uh, canvas teams from Yes Scotland last night and nearly 40% of the people that they had targeted, and this was a core group of undecideds in a particular constituency in Glasgow that they had tracked over the last few months, 40% of that group were still uh, divided, and the rest had split roughly evenly between uh, yes and no. Can you tell me just something about the organisations on the two sides? We get the impression that the yes side has a bigger ground operation. Is that mm. the case? Uh, well, it's more than an impression. I mean, it's it's embarrassing in, in cases, uh, in places, the, the difference between the two of them. Uh, yes, uh, Scotland, in many places, put in ground operations beginning 18 months ago. Now, they were very trifling at that stage, volunteer uh, staff maybe open a couple of days a week and they've been slowly cranking it up uh, since that time. In one constituency in Glasgow, for instance, a, sm- a group of, of Yes campaigners have uh, built up quite significant data lists 
uh, on the back of an SNP uh, uh, IT system that they've used in a number of elections, which they borrowed from American politics. And that has given them an opportunity to just track uh, who people are, uh, where they stand in terms of uh, independence. And for instance, it isn't just a question of, of asking people whether they're yes or no, but putting them on a scale between one or ten, one to ten, and then uh, targeting the most uh, of their resources at the people in the middle that they think they can get to switch uh, in their direction. And Battle Together, on the other hand, have had a very trifling operation. Uh, labour, the, the core of it should be labour, but that uh, labour operation now, even in the central belt of Scotland between Glasgow and Edinburgh, is a fraction of what it used to be even 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, the leaders of Britain's main uh, parties have signed a statement uh, spelling out some of the new devolved powers that Scotland will get if there's a no vote on Thursday. What does this new package actually amount to? Well, I mean, it is significant. It, we, we've had the Scotland uh, 2012 Act, which has already been passed into law and will come into force in 2016, assuming that Scotland stays in the Union. That already gives extra powers over tax and uh, spending and some borrowing powers. Uh, what they're now talking about is a package that is effectively uh, pretty much near uh, full home rule on a whole variety of areas, bar certain areas uh, of welfare and UK-wide uh, Payments. But there, there are issues. Uh, what you've seen in yesterday's statement, but the, the vow is to uh, attempt to deal with Scots' worries and fears that they're back into a repetition of 1979 where they were made promises if they rejected the uh, Scottish Assembly at that point that they would get a uh, far greater devolution. That promise was not honoured. And that has remained like a vestigial memory almost in Scottish politics since then. What uh, Cameron and Clegg and Middleman are now trying to do is to say this is absolutely guaranteed. It will happen. Now, personally, I think there's no doubt that there would be significant extra uh, Scottish uh, devolution to come if Scots say no, but you couldn't absolutely say for definite that each and every line and scintilla can be delivered because by opening this up, they have effectively done constitutional reform in Britain on the hoof, and there are many people in England, and an increasing number because of, of, of having paid attention to the Scottish debate, who are now increasingly well aware that England is actually doing more of all in some ways uh, in the, the home rule settlement and that they will be demanding extra powers. So if Scots vote no, there will be a discussion and work starting immediately on the preparation of a white paper, Gordon Brown, who bounced uh, the political leaders to some degree into uh, this plan, has said that the final legislation would go before the House of Commons by Burns night on January 25th. I think it's... It, it, in, in political reality terms, I think you can pretty much guarantee that 80, 90, 95% of this will actually be honoured, but you couldn't absolutely rule out that there would be some uh, serious problems with English MPs that would have to be overcome in the meantime. But frankly, that problem is one that any occupant of number 10 at this moment in time would gladly take, given the danger of losing the union. Now, as, as we've mentioned, the pro-independence campaign has been mobilising some big crowds, and one of these was a crowd protesting outside the BBC's offices early this week. Uh, what were they protesting about? 
Well, they've been long convinced that the BBC has been biased in its coverage, and uh, there is an issue with Scottish media, print media here, which is um, uh, very, it, it, they, all of the newspapers have taken positions on this campaign have long since out. The Herald Group are the only ones who have been uh, favouring independence. The, the Sunday Herald has been openly uh, favouring independence. The Daily Herald has been certainly far warmer to it. Everything else has been, to a greater or lesser degree, a very strongly uh, anti-independence, which is curious when you're dealing with a population mix where, you know, at the moment we look like we're half and half. Now, BBC is slightly obviously a public institution governed by broadcasting rules. They are have faced accusations from the Yes campaign that they've been biased. Now, to be fair to the BBC, they've taken criticism from the pro-union side, uh, better together, uh, with the same uh, volume of complaint, particularly over the second TV debate between Alistair Darling and Alex Salmon. And the audience in that occasion, who should have been, were carefully picked to be proportional according to the believed uh, breakdown of, of support for either side on this issue, they ended up sounding, for whatever reason, like an SNP rally at the end of the night. Now, Better Together were extremely unhappy about that. They complained privately, but they did no more. What we've seen uh, now are public rallies, and it, what, what you saw on Sunday is not the first one that's been held outside the BBC, but it has been the biggest. And it is intimidatory, and it's meant to be intimidatory, contrary to what any, anybody on the yes Scotland uh, side uh, says, uh, particularly the way in which uh, Nick Robinson, the BBC political editor, w- was targeted. Now, he had ended up in um, a spat with Alex Salmond at a, a press conference uh, that was said to have been for international press. Now, I think it's true that probably both of them uh, didn't behave particularly brilliantly in it, but uh, the f- film of that went online, and that fueled uh, Yes Scotland's beliefs that, and Yes supporters' beliefs that the BBC were um, were biased. But it is quite striking how so many people on the Yes side subsequently claimed that international journalists who had been at the event and who were the primary focus of the press conference had uh, cheered and applauded in support of Alex Salmond when he put down uh, Nick Robinson. And that, in fact, did not happen because the clapping and cheering uh, came from SNP supporters who had been bust in quite outrageously uh, for the event and quite why uh, some of the people in the audience act in, the, in the press corps who attended that particular press conference put up with it is rather hard to see. But the uh, criticisms of the BBC have been very strong and there's no doubt that there will be a half-life uh, left by this because uh, should uh, the BBC, uh, should the, the yes side win, there is talk uh, and there will be a new Scottish Broadcasting Corporation and people on the no side are saying this is evidence of what will happen in a independent Scotland when it is SNP dominated and that there will be political interference in the press and that is a charge that is accepted by people not just in the BBC it has to be said. Now if there is a yes vote on Thursday Mark what can we expect to happen first thing on Friday morning? Well, I mean, the party that will happen will be uh, beyond belief. Uh, There's no doubt uh, people on the yes side have spent 18 months working very hard and this very efficiently, but many of them have spent their entire lives, adult lives, uh, in chase of this dream, and they will celebrate accordingly. Uh, Once, uh, if there is a yes vote, then we get into 18 months of negotiations, which will start 
uh, the scoping out of those negotiations will have to start pretty quickly. Quite what can be done in any real terms before May of 2015 is open to uh, argument. The uh, British government have insisted that they've made no contingency plans, that they haven't planned for a yes vote. Um, However, because of the May election, it's difficult to know who's actually going to negotiate for the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, I mean, should there be a Labour presence in a a British government, British uh, or UK team, as it were, in the same way that Alex Simon is talking about building a Yes Scotland team. And uh, then there will be inevitable rows over the the division of assets. Uh, There is the problem with currency. London is still saying there will be no currency union. Uh, An incredible number of people still believe here that that is a bluff. I'm not convinced, but it may may be, but certainly all the indications are to the contrary. And then there will be a whole variety of rows about uh, Trident and everything else. It will be a very difficult task to get this done in 18 months particularly when the clock in many ways can't really begin until June of 2015 after the general election in London. The polling stations are open on Thursday from 7 o'clock in the morning until 10pm. When will we know the result? Well, depending on the queues that are still there at 10 o'clock, some of the polling stations may not close at 10. They've said that anybody who's in the queue then uh, will be be allowed to vote. Yes, Scotland are putting together what they say will be the biggest uh, ground mobilisation operation in history to get their vote out. Cars have been, uh, guys will be acting as taxis uh, and they are going to be calling on homes of people uh, throughout the day to either encourage them out to vote, to remind them or to check whether they have um, come out to vote. So it is going to be an extraordinary day. Then we'll get into individual count centres who will be declaring their results in their own time. Clackmanshire, north of Fife, is the smallest. It has about 40-odd thousand voters. It is confidently expecting to be, at least for five minutes, the most uh, famous place in the world. And uh, then uh, we will have declarations during the night. It now seems that the Western Niles and the Hebrides are talking about declaring in the early hours. And uh, Glasgow could be... uh, between 5 and 6 a.m. with a final result probably sometime between 6 and 9 a.m. That is all subject to the qualifier that there could be recounts. If this becomes very, very tight, uh, there will inevitably be demands for recounts. Now, under the, the Electoral Commission rules here, a tight result is not an immediate uh, ground for declaring a recount because it is a straight binary choice, choice, yes or no. It's not as complicated as PRSDV as we have in Ireland. So it is absolutely guaranteed that every demand for a recount uh, would be granted, although I think in political terms, if one is made and the need to ensure that this result is accepted by all sides, it is probably likely that recounts will be offered. So as I say, sometime between 6 and 9 a.m. for a final declaration, subject to, to there being no recount uh, really problematic recounts. One way or another, a long and exciting night ahead. Mark Hennessy, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Representatives of 30 countries met in Paris this week to pledge support for an international effort to defeat the self-styled Islamic State, or ISIS, which has captured territory in Iraq and Syria, persecuted minorities and murdered hostages, including two American journalists and a British aid worker. The United States has stepped up its military action against the group with airstrikes in support of Iraqi forces near Baghdad and France has flown reconnaissance flights over Iraq in preparation for joining the US air campaign.
Washington says that nearly 40 countries are ready to join the fight against ISIS. But it remains unclear how the coalition, which doesn't include Iran or Syria, will fight the militants inside Syria's borders. And Turkey, which has NATO's second biggest army and borders both Iraq and Syria, says it's not ready to play a military role in the fight against ISIS and that it won't allow the US to use Turkish air bases to launch airstrikes on the militants. So how effective will the anti-ISIS coalition be? Will Iran and Syria be brought into the fold? And what will it take to persuade Turkey's reluctant warriors to come on board? To discuss all this, I'm joined from London by Patrick Coburn, Middle East correspondent of the London Independent and author of The Jihadi's Return, ISIS and the New Sunni Uprising. And from Washington by Soner Chaptai, director of the Turkish Research Programme at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the author of The Rise of Turkey, the 21st century's first Muslim power. Patrick Coburn, you were writing this week that the fight against ISIS has produced some strange bedfellows. Are you impressed by the breadth of this coalition? No, rather the opposite, because it's uh, it's very numerous, but it's completely incoherent. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's more of a sort of mob of people, countries with completely different uh, policies and attitudes and intentions. Um, and oh, excuse me, and it varies. I mean, from people like uh, Gatar that is still saying uh, it doesn't see that um, Assad is any better than uh, ISIS and that, uh, or Jabhat al-Nusra, the uh, um, al-Qaeda affiliate, and then names other jihadi uh, organizations very similar to uh, al-Qaeda, which it says are perfectly okay. Um, so I think that um, it's so incoherent, it's not clear what it's going to do. I mean, the problem for the Americans is that they don't have uh, reliable partners on the ground, either in Iraq or Syria. The Iraqi government has been sort of press gang together under American pressure. Um, they're speaking of using the uh, Syrian moderate opposition um, against ISIS, but that's a very weak and divided partner in itself. Uh, so I think that by bringing together this coalition, they probably have more modest aims to prevent to stop Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchies uh, supporting with uh, finance or uh, in other ways the um, ISIS or the jihadis in Syria uh, they probably want to use them their influence over the Syrian community Syria, the uh, Sunni communities particularly the tribes in both countries um, they probably want to uh, make sure that what they're doing is not presented as a, an anti-arab or indeed an anti-sunni uh, Camp Crusade. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's not very impressive. Iran and Syria, as I mentioned, are not part of this coalition. Should they be? Well, yes, and in effect, you know, all this talk of coalition is, is sort of, I think, confuses things rather than uh, making them clearer. Um, if you take the people who are actually fighting uh, ISIS on the ground or likely to do so, uh, you have the Iranians in Iraq who uh, uh, largely run some of the Shia militias, who are which are advancing north from Baghdad. Uh, but uh, the Americans supposedly are not talking to them, although they're bombing as these militias advance. So there obviously is some coordination uh, through third part parties, probably the Iraqi army. Uh, then in uh, Syria, they say it had nothing to do with Assad. But what? Uh, but uh, 
ISIS is 30 miles from Aleppo, the largest city in Syria. What happens if they make a lunge for Aleppo? Uh, are the Americans not going to bomb because this might help Assad? You know, so this is pretty, um, pretty strange. Um, and I think that what you will have is overt uh, emphasis on how much members of the 40-member coalition are doing, uh, such as Saudi Arabia and so forth, and covert cooperation and a downplaying uh, about how much the Iranians or uh, the Syrian government or Hezbollah and Lebanon are doing against ISIS. So now, Chaptai, uh, Turkey says it supports the action against ISIS, but it's hesitant about playing a military role itself. Why is that? That's probably because Turkey is a partner to the U.S. against ISIS, but I would say it's an invisible partner in the sense that although Turkey is very much uh, threatened by the emergence of ISIS across from its 800-mile-long border with uh, Iraq and Syria, it's also scared of this group for a variety of reasons. Number one, because ISIS has uh, almost over 100 Turkish hostages in its hands now that it could execute at will, and I think the Turks are really... Uh, in a, a, a dance on thin ice with ISIS as uh, they're trying to not be publicly committed to the campaign against this group so they don't uh, you know, precipitate the execution of their hostages, but at the same time work behind the scenes with the United States and with the Kurds to uh, bolster the anti-ISIS coalition. What would it take to uh, to persuade Turkey to play a more active role? I mean, do you see this uh, position that they have now of being invisible? Do you see that changing in the short term? For the foreseeable future, probably not, because uh, ISIS has two groups of Turkish hostages, one that it took when it attacked the Iraqi city of Mosul in June, and that's about 46 Turks, including diplomats, security officials, their families, children, and the baby. And, of course, there will be a, a you know, humanitarian and post-domestic well, debacle for the Turkish government if those hostages came in harm's way, and I think uh, ISIS knows that. So the group will probably not touch these hostages, but they'll have to live in an unfortunate limbo between freedom and execution, uh, with the group knowing that should it uh, execute the hostages, that will, of course, bring Turkey openly to the uh, anti-ISIS front, and Turkey would not only participate in this campaign, but probably even introduce airstrikes. So at the same time, the group also knows that it cannot release the hostages from its own perspective, because that would also invite more open and public Turkish participation. So I think we're really seeing this uh, stalemate between Turkey and ISIS, where Turkey really wants to go after this group, and will do so very unpublicly and through ways that we will not read about in the media, uh, but will probably not commit to the anti-ISIS front uh, at, let's say, the uh, communique side and international summits. Turkey will be uh, surprisingly missing from those communiques. Some of Turkey's critics have suggested that the emergence of ISIS is to some extent the wages of Turkey's dramatic change in its foreign policy towards the Middle East in recent years. Could you take us through the way in which Turkey's policy in the region has changed under its present government? Indeed, Turkish leaders are largely to blame, unfortunately, for the ISIS uh, problems that have emerged at the country's uh, doorstep. Uh, Turkey's Syria policy is a case in point. Uh, to what you've just described, this, uh, this uh, treacherous waters of Turkish policy in the Middle East that the leaders have taken the country into. Uh, to the Turkish leaders, uh, when the Syrian uprising started, uh, thought that they could somehow single-handedly shape the outcome of the Syrian uprising if they threw their support behind the rebels. So perhaps a hubristic viewpoint of the region. Uh, I could do things on my own, and therefore I will, policy, I call it. And I think this policy uh, led Turkey first to open up 
its uh, doors to the uh, refugees coming from Syria, an honorable step. Turkey, up to this date, uh, shelters nearly one and a half million refugees without, with little international support. And I think to this end, the Turks should be applauded. But at the same time, the government also soon enough drifted into another policy, which is that it opened its uh, doors to rebels. Soon, Turkey became a staging ground for the rebels, and uh, it also started to allow uh, fighters, international fighters, including radicals, to cross into Syria. Some of those later morphed into ISIS and uh, formed uh, what looks like a Taliban-like state across from Turkey's doorstep, controlling this ter- um, territory the size of Portugal. That's a formidable threat to Turkey. I would say it's as large a threat comes to Turkey since the Cold War when Stalin demanded Turkish uh, territory in 1946. Uh, the Turkish leaders are, unfortunately, largely to blame for this threat because of the fact that their Syria policy was based on a, a false premise. The premise was the following. That Assad would fall, that good guys would take over, and that if a few bad guys went into Syria to accelerate the Assad's fall, that was fine because when the good guys took over, they would clean them up. Well, three years later... Assad is not falling, good guys are not taking over, and it's the bad guys who are in fact becoming stronger and not only threatening the good guys in Syria, but also Turkey. And I think this has been the rude wake-up call to Turkey's policy. Is Ankara now reassessing this policy and its role in the region more generally? Uh, To a large extent, behind the scenes, once again, yes. I think Turkey is realizing that it cannot shape Middle East developments on its own, and it doesn't have the hard power to uh, define the politics of this region. I think part of the Turkish hubris was driven by the fact that Turkey has done so well economically in the last decade, and that the fact that the, the country thought it had accumulated enough soft power, which would also enable it to you know, become a Middle East power, and that has not really happened. So the reassessment is uh, one where Turkey is saying, yes, we do have economic and soft power, but unfortunately the, the, uh, the most significant element of what would make a country a Middle East power, uh, firepower is missing from Turkish arsenal. And for that, I think the Turkish reassessment means Turkey's pivot to the United States and to NATO. Hence, Turkey's uh, rather strong participation in the anti-ISIS front, to the extent that that's invisible and not public, uh, we're seeing, for example, that the Turks and Kurds are working very closely together with the United States to establish an effective uh, cordon sanitaire in northern Iraq, which is uh, what would protect Turkey against further ISIS uh, advances. Patrick Coburn, do you share this uh, assessment of Turkey's role in facilitating the rise of ISIS? Yes, I think that that was a, a very uh, cogently put and is uh, correct. Um, and I think it's rather astonishing that uh, Turkey took such a forward role in doing this, particularly when uh, I've uh, ever talked to Turks about it. It doesn't seem a particularly policy, popular policy on the street this engagement in uh, Syria. Um, But one question I'd uh, like to put is, are they going to, um, is Turkey going to act against ISIS, or is it going to act against all the jihadi movements uh, in Syria? Because um, it seems to me there are two dangers in what in the U.S. policy as announced and as endorsed by others. One is to exaggerate uh, the strength of the so-called moderate opposition, and uh, which is really uh, a fairly uh, slender force. Or secondly, which uh, particularly Saudi Arabia and the 
Gulf monarchies do this, is to relabel movements that are really very similar uh, to ISIS in uh, ideology and methodology uh, as somehow being uh, moderate. Now, is Turkey going to go along with that? Is the border going to be shut to ISIS but open to uh, other groups whom, which uh, Turkey might, uh, the Turkish government might regard as uh, moderate, but nobody else might? Sunir Chaptai? Yes, I, I think that uh, Turkey's policy has to make a differentiation between uh, uh, tactical and strategic alliances. I think Turkey has tactically allowed pretty much any group and every group to go into Syria and not caring for the long-term strategic picture that would emerge from that country. So the uh, emerging ISIS threat against Turkey and the group has targeted Turkey, uh, attacking its consulate and taking its citizens hostages has taught the Turks a lesson that uh, sometimes these tactical alliances may, may backfire. But I think Turkey's heart still is in the, the Muslim Brotherhood factions, not just in Syria, but in the broader Middle East. And in that regard, one could argue that uh, Turkey maybe has not played uh, great power politics uh, so well, which is that if it was indeed trying to shape the region, it would be supporting not just one party, but various parties, not just in Syria, but in other countries, in fact, the, uh, the critics of Turkey's Middle East policy in Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, Yemen, and Libya suggest that Turkey's policy has been playing to just one horse, and that is the losing horse, the horse of the Muslim Brotherhood. And as the Brotherhood has been sidelined from politics pretty much everywhere, including in Syria where it has been defeated by the hardliners, that means Turkey has been left with no proxy. So perhaps this uh, requires the reassessment of Turkey's policy that seems increasingly partisan as views from the Middle East. Patrick Coburn, uh, ISIS has exploited grievances among the Sunni populations of both Iraq and Syria to win the support that it's needed to flourish. Are, is there any sign of these grievances being addressed now by those forces that are opposed to ISIS? Well, nominally, the new Iraqi government uh, replacing that of Nouri al-Maliki is uh, more... Uh, moderate um, is uh, extending a hand to the Sunni, I mean, at least verbally. Um, but I wonder whether this will cut any ice among the Sunni in Iraq. I mean, I got a message from an email from a friend of mine in uh, Mosul uh, last Friday, a woman, and she was saying, you know, we're being bombed. Uh, they're aiming for ISIS. They're not down the Iraqi, sorry, the Iraqi Air Force is bombing them. We may have been planes or helicopters, she didn't say. Uh, they haven't hit uh, any ISIS positions. They have blown up the local generator. There's those private generators you find all over Iraq. So there are no, there's no electricity in our neighborhood. And she said that uh, Amelie, a um, Shia Turkmen town, had been retaken by, um, or relieved, I'm sorry, by the, uh, from a siege by the uh, Shia militias that all the Sunni villages around had been thrashed, the Sunni driven out. Uh, so I think actually on the ground, not much has changed. But um, what happens is, and this is true in both Syria as well, that you have many local people who are frightened of ISIS, don't particularly like ISIS, don't like their extreme religious ideology. But they may be even more frightened, if they're a Sunni um, Arab, of... Um, Assad uh, and his army or pro-Assad militias taking, coming back, or in Iraq of the Iraqi army or the Shia militias coming in. So they're caught in a vice, but I think that this will incline them to stand with ISIS at the moment, because at least ISIS comes from their community. 
the, the US and most of its allies have ruled out taking part in a ground offensive against ISIS, Patrick. Is this a strategy that can succeed? Well, I think, you know, air power can do certain things quite well, like when ISIS was advancing on Arbil, the Kurdish uh, uh, capital, some weeks ago, uh, having American aircraft that could attack their uh, columns of vehicles and uh, their artillery was pretty effective. It's pretty sort of flat around there. There isn't much cover. Um, likewise, they can sort of operate in preventing ISIS from beginning to encircle Baghdad. Um, and uh, I think that that sort of thing, when the uh, when ISIS is lined up to attack and it's difficult for them to conceal their forces wholly, is effective. But ISIS is a guerrilla army. You know, talk of going after their headquarters in Raqqa and their supply dumps and other things uh, is very difficult because they they don't have uh, they aren't organised that way. And also, you need sort of on the ground immediate intelligence, and you also need uh, for these sort of strikes to be effective, so forward air observers from your own army. So um, I think effective in some respects, but by no means all. Uh, finally, Soner, uh, we've been hearing quite a lot over the last uh, few months and indeed a little longer about these uh, these borders that were drawn after um, uh, during the First World War and uh, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire. And some talk that these, uh, these borders are now being ripped up. That's certainly what uh, ISIS would like to see. How stable do you think that those borders are? Do you, uh, can you foresee uh, a redrawing of them in the, uh, in the short term? Well, you know, I think uh, a few years down the road, uh, the governments of Iraq and Syria will probably continue to exist. Uh, um, uh, you will still fly into Damascus International Airport, and somebody will send your passport with the Syrian Arab Republic stamp. But it will end there. Uh, in a similar fashion to what Lebanon has become in the, in the last three, four decades, a country largely decentralized, where uh, the authority of the central government is constantly checked by ethnic and religious and political-based militia and even autonomous regions. I think this is increasingly going to be the trend in Iraq and Syria. Uh, decentralized countries where uh, de facto central governments will continue to exist, but the authority is going to be checked by autonomous regions, such as those run by the Kurds, militia, such as those run by you know, various ethnic and religious groups, and uh, large uh, parts of those countries controlled by al-Qaeda and its affiliates, whether or not ICC is defeated. So we're really seeing, I think, uh, two other Lebanons emerging in the greater sense, uh, stretching from the Iranian border to the Mediterranean. So that's an incredible uh, arch of instability. Uh, right to Turkey's southern borders, at the, obviously the southern flank of both NATO in the immediacy of the European Union. And I think uh, that's really not very good news for the Turks in the short term because they have done well economically. They have grown a phenomenal rates in the last decade. And incomes have more than doubled. Uh, the citizens now look better off. But a lot of this growth really depends on Turkey's ability to remain a stable place, which is why it has been attracting international investment, which is why it has been growing. So that means Turkey is now left uh, with a choice that it needs to buy more security. It needs to obviously uh, shield itself from the instability coming from this, uh, this arc of instability extending from Iraq, Syria, into Lebanon. And that depends to what extent Turkey can maintain good ties with its a traditional allies that includes the Europeans and the Americans and NATO, uh, with which it can basically secure its southern flank or otherwise will be increasingly more exposed to threats coming from that area. So the lesson for the Turkish leaders is that 
Turkey may have tried to play on its own in the Middle East, but maybe that's not going to be so easy. And increasingly, it's in the, in the Turks' interest and long-term prosperity that uh, they remain really uh, good with their Western friends, including Europeans and Americans. Patrick Coburn, do you also see two Lebanons emerging? I don't really. I, I see the parallel, but I, I don't think it should be carried too far. In Iraq, I see three sort of sovereign states emerging, perhaps within a country still called Iraq. But unlike Lebanon, these will be heavily armed, heavily centralized states, Kurdish, Sunni, and Shia. Uh, so I don't think that they'll be uh, a weak um, except in the sense that they won't be that big. In Syria, I think you know, one has to ask, you know, will there, can there be a single winner? And it looks somewhat unlikely. But I think within the area, let's say, that's controlled by President Assad from uh, Damascus um, up to Aleppo and over to the coast, um, it's too early to tell. But you might well have what, in effect, would be sort of two uh, state-like entities uh, confronting each other, but both uh, quite powerful within that entity. Patrick Coburn and Soner Chaptai, thank you. Soner Chaptai's book, The Rise of Turkey, the 21st Century's First Muslim Power, is published by the University of Nebraska Press. And Patrick Coburn's The Jihadis Return, ISIS and the New Sunni Uprising, is published by Orr Books. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find out more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>